Hello. <laughs> and and so it begins. And so, and so it begins. Hello, 2021. We're I'm Amy Rivers, and this is Eating After Midnight, a podcast where me and my best friend, Sasha Chambers, reheat movies from our childhood to see if the leftovers have retained their flavor or leave a bad taste in our mouths. It's also about how these movies influenced, inspired, and shaped us. Whether the ideas they cooked up fed us, nourished our bodies and minds, or just rotted our teeth and clogged our mental arteries. Sasha and I are not film scholars, but we do have a genuine love of movies, as well as a beautiful friendship that spans 26 years, because it's 2021. Which means that by the time we met, you and I had probably already seen the film that we're going to review today at least 10 to 12 times. Oh, I'd I'd up those numbers. Probably, right. Oh, yeah, I'd up that number. I'm going up to 30. Mm -hmm. I'd seen this movie so many times. So do you want to introduce the film, Sasha Chambers? Today, for our first installment of Eating After Midnight 2021, we will be reviewing and reheating Better Off Dead, starring John Cusack, directed by Savage Steve Holland. Hope that's his name. Savage Steve Holland is his name. Just double check. <laughs> Just so double check. Yeah. Pretty sure. Yeah. Like, I thought yeah. we would pull that out of nowhere. We're reviewing this movie because this month our theme is crushed out on Cusack because oh. it's Valentine's Day. And John Cusack was probably my number one next to River Phoenix. It was like River Phoenix was my number one. And then River Phoenix passed away. So I couldn't marry him anymore. And then John Cusack just like swooped in there. And it wasn't this film, it was the next film that we're going to be doing um, mm-hmm. this month, which is Say Anything, which mm-hmm. was 1988. And I did see that movie in a theater and I fell in love with John Cusack so hard. So very, very hard. And then I think after that, I rewatched this film. So I probably didn't watch this film in 1985 when it came out. I think I watched it after say anything because after say anything i would watch john cusack you'd watch john cusack yeah read the phone book there's a good chance you didn't see it in 1985 because it completely tanked at the box office and you probably only ever saw it on cable or rented from blockbuster video because that's really where this film took off both sasha and i could not find this streaming online i bought it and i'm happy i did i can't believe it's not online and and really i can't believe it was only 4.99 well, all DVDs are cheap. Oh, that's true. Cause, yeah, yeah, because again, who's buying DVDs? I did find it in like the dark web, to be fair. But I had to watch a shitload of commercials to get through it. But anyway, like this movie needs to get streaming. Like Amazon, get on this. Netflix, get on this. Like this new film needs to get back into our culture. I think the world can be separated into three people. The people who get this movie, the people who don't get this movie, and then the people who have yet to have seen it and made a decision. And you could probably 
create your friends lists and your non-friends lists based on that. Oh yeah, this would this would definitely be a filtering factor. Except for what's sad about that is to find out that John Cusack is one of the people that didn't get this movie. That really broke my heart. That's like one of I the know that like, hurt bad. So John Cusack actually walked out of the first screening of this film, red-faced, angry at Savage Steve Holland being just like, you tricked me, this movie is horrible, it's the worst thing I've ever done. Very, very upset. But years later, he's kind of relaxed a bit and has recognized that, you know, it is pretty amazing and he's really happy that it's reached cult status. So- Unfortunately though, his favorite part of the movie is actually my least favorite part of the movie. What's that? The one truly gratuitous race line where they're up in the tree, the only two black characters in the whole film are up in the tree and they go, it's, it's such a shame to sh- throw out a perfectly good white boy. That's his favorite line in the movie. What? Yes. I was wondering how that would clock with you. I didn't dig it. I didn't dig it only because it was like, well, first of all, there's no other black characters in the film. And then the only thing they have to say is race related. Um, it just kind of was like, you know, this is yeah, this yeah. is boring and unnecessary. It wasn't it wasn't like I'm so offended in this shit. Of, this movie is ruined for me now. That did not happen. But it was just kind of like, oh yeah, well, had to see that coming. It's 1985, so sure, of course that had to happen, yeah. right? Well, I counted it. There's three black people in it, so there's of course the the, the two the two uh, in the tree, the two in the tree, and then there's one that I saw in the cafeteria. And I was, I was looking, I was looking. And then of course there's four Asian people. I mean the two Asian dudes and then their subsequent later girlfriends that get to be <laughs> yes. in the car for like five seconds while they eat out takeout boxes. Hey, <laughs> I need to count the Asians when I can, Sasha, you know? Yes, yeah. well, I mean, that's, that's part of why we're doing this is like, how often did we actually see ourselves reflected on the silver screen and not in a way that made us self-hate? So what's really a bummer about that though, is that like the actor who played the character, the one of the guys in the car who um, mimics Howard Cassell's voice. So he worked like really, really hard at doing his best. Oh, so that's the dog. Um, he worked his, hard, his hardest at creating this Howard Cosell impersonation only for them to then go in and have Rich Little overdub every single line of his performance because Aww. He did it with a slight Asian accent and they wanted to make sure that the audience could understand his English. Oh, that's, oh, you know. Yeah, so I mean, it's 1985. It's 1985 though. Telling me production notes, not on this film. I don't want to hear them, (laughs) but anyway. So who doesn't know about this movie? Maybe a few of you don't know about this movie and we'll read IMDb. After his girlfriend ditches him for a boorish ski jock, Lane decides that suicide is the only answer. However, his increasingly inept attempts bring him only more agony and embarrassment, filled with the wildest teen nightmares. Who the fuck wrote that? Was that was terrible. That was really... That was really that, awful. That was one of the worst of, ones we've read yet, actually. Well, you know, on so on the trailer that I watched, you know, the 1985 trailer, it says an abnormal look at a normal teenager, which actually, you know, not very sophisticated copy line there, but that kind of works a little bit better, particularly in the conversation I want to have with you, which is why is this movie so funny? It's so funny because it's deeply authentically autobiographical because when there's shit that you can't make up, that the, the crux of comedy is pain. 
Someone else's pain is your pleasure. And when someone is willing to expose their deep insecurities and how alien they feel to the rest of the world in such a way that they can actually communicate that effectively, that is perfect comedy. I love it. Assume and that's and that's the difference between comedians and clowns. Like excellent comedians can show you their perception of the world through the filter of how alien they feel and actually bring you into their alien world, their alien perception of this and, and make you see it the way they do. Whereas clowns just tell fart jokes. It's surrealism at its finest. And I think you're absolutely right. And I love the way that you said that. It's a super black comedy. Um, it's super black. Day. In fact, one of my first thoughts when it started rolling was, why is this PG? Is it PG? It's fucking PG. That should have been PG-13. Well, there's it's no curse words in it. I can't there's remember. There's no curse when... words and there's no, there's no booby shots. There's just that one random where like the cheerleader gets her dress ripped off. But, but no, she's still in bra. She's yeah, no boob. She's still in bra and panties. And Nike skates, which were fly as fuck. Um, but yeah, but still, the I guess you could watch that as we did as a kid and have the, the absolute darkness of this film wash over you. But wow, yeah, yeah I mean, to pay attention to it as an adult, you're like, this is there's some very dark things, and there's some I guess in my my older years now, some places my mind went um, in watching some of these scenes. We'll, we'll just go right to it. So the part where he, so because IMDb did a complete sham of describing this. Yeah, film. yeah, please, Sasha. Go ahead. Lane Meyer, young man, freshly in love, who's lost his virginity to his first, we would say first is a girlfriend, goes crazy when she dumps him for a complete jerk of a ski instructor. And in his teen obsessive craziness, considers that he might in fact be better off dead if this girl doesn't want him in his life, right? And tries all kinds of varieties of ways to off himself, one of which being to self-immolate, um, which, is, which is really hilarious. He grabs all of the sheets off the bed, tries to set himself on fire. One of the ways though, that isn't quite as funny and actually is completely autobiographical is he goes to the garage, ties a power cord around his neck, ties the other end to a pipe in the garage. And as he's contemplating this, the mom opens the door. The mom's a whole other part of this podcast that we'll get to in a few minutes, opens the door and knocks him off the step where he then of course starts wrestling violently to save his own life while she's just, you know, pushing the vacuum cleaner back and forth. And now I guess the story, the, the true autobiographical version of this is that he in fact did that, was standing on the lid of a plastic trash can, which then caved in, he pulled the pipe free, and then his mom just freaked out on him because he had destroyed his pipe in the garage while he's- She didn't know sitting, that he was trying to do it. Right, she didn't, she didn't even clock that there was a, a noose of a power cord around his neck while he's bobbing in a garbage can that is flooding with the water from the pipe from above. But so in the film, when he's like dangling, I just keep looking at his feet and praying that they'll find that little step and that he'll hold himself. And all immediately my mind goes to the mom closes the door. He actually does die. They later on find him and she has no idea, right, that she did this. And it's this like this sadness where it's like, we don't know why our son committed suicide. We are editing this out. Why would just went to such a dark place. 
Ah, Sasha. Because it's a dark comedy and these are dark times and I am not impervious to the darkness of lockdown, quarantine, depression where some pretty darky, dark thoughts come around. Yeah, yeah. Like maybe he does really die there and the rest of the movie is just like a flash of his his final moments. Oh, Sasha, I don't want to go there. Let's It went very dark for me. Dark times, man. It's dark times. Well, I mean, you know, we might as well bounce around because this is our goddamn podcast and it's 2021. So when we were younger, the thing that we were taught was that suicide is that coward's way out. And that was kind of drilled into your head. Like it's the most selfish thing you can do. Yeah. It's the selfish thing you can do. Whereas nowadays we understand that suicide is the result of extremes amounts of pain mm-hmm. and mental illness and sometimes just a pain. deep deep sense of alienation you know when we were growing up you would you would even say to your friends like if you commit suicide then i will never think about you again whereas now it's like you know we're a lot more sympathetic empathetic um we have open conversations about it so would this movie have been made is it a little too close to the bone I, I think that teen suicide is too prevalent today. I don't think that they would have let this one fly. But you know, it's, it's hard because I believe in dark humor and I think it has a place in our society. And it would be too bad if a movie like this couldn't be made because I think that when we walk really close to the line, we don't necessarily normalize it. But like, you know what I mean? Like this movie does not glorify killing yourself. No. It, it does make you laugh at it and maybe actually deal with that emotion. Because, you know, I felt like that when I was in high school and my first boyfriend broke up with me. Oh my God, Mm -hmm. I I wanted to die. I can remember the feeling. I remember the obsession. It's so endearing. Like when he's in the car and he's like, six months, six months. And she tosses it all the way around. Oh God. In six months. Oh, I used to feel, I felt like that too. Oh, less than six months, two weeks. A boy made out with me and didn't want to talk to me the next day. I was crying about it for, you know. Six months. Six months. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, like, I don't know if I ever went so far of um, putting a boyfriend's picture on my hangers. Whoa. I still love it. But like, I have been obsessed. And, and mind you, I've had boys be obsessed over me that like, I feel like it was Lane. Like, I think I've dated Lane and been Lane at the same time. Mind you, I do not understand why the, the name Lane, that's such a 1980s Lane is really bad. Terrible, terrible name there. But in regards to dark comedies, ultimately in this film, he doesn't have any reason to want to kill him, like to kill himself. You know what I mean? It's like, he may feel that way, but it's not that bad. And the ability to laugh at it for a second. I think and it just takes a spunky little French girl to say, hey, look, you have so much going for you, Lane. I'm a victim of sex trafficking and I don't want to kill myself. No, no, I mean, maybe I'm off base. Maybe maybe if, if you were really suffering from, you know, suicidal thoughts, you'd watch a movie like this and you would be, it would just push you further. But I, I don't know, I feel like, there is a place for dark comedy. There is a place for a movie like this that alleviates the pressure of these things that we take so seriously in our world. It's not a laughing matter, but I don't think they, I don't think the suicide is the funny thing in this movie. No, no, the absurdity of this guy's experience is, is the funny thing. At some point, it was the kitchen scene when dad comes downstairs for breakfast and Badger is sitting there writing his little notes to get his prizes from the coupons off of the cereal boxes and they all have holes in them. And the mom serves him green boiled bacon and she is 
so clearly on Quaaludes or some shit where I'm like, yeah, this is autobiographical because you cannot, you can't make up a mom that gives you frozen dinners for Christmas. Like that had to have really happened to someone. And sure enough, when I read that this was autobiographical, I was like, yep, bingo, because that's just too fucking weird. And like the dad's the only sane person in the room. Mom's on Quaaludes. Badger is a, um, is a mad scientist pimp. And Lane is a psychopathic stalker who takes a shower in his socks. The fucking little things just get you every time. Like when he first starts racing, the Japanese guys in the car next to him, they put on gloves. He puts on rubber gloves. Yes, the the dish gloves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love it. When his father wakes up in the morning and rushes outside to, you know, open up the garage. He in, put- in the in the frilly, in the frilly mom robe. Also, why do they have such a small bed? Why are they sharing like a twin <laughs> bed? It's super weird. It's those little shtick and gags, which usually I wouldn't like, but this film does shtick like masterclass and the gags always pay off and it's just details 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 every single scene actually they don't miss a chance to create hilarity like oh man the the basketball team right the basketball team doesn't speak they actually just just grunt and they're eating baby food (laughs) like it's like one of my favorite scenes is when he and beth first meet and they do the internal dialogue about the nose scratching thing. Oh, she scratched her nose. That must mean that I have something. What? He scratched his nose. Does that mean that I have something? They just like completely fall apart into all these nervous tics. And it's brilliant. It's really it's brilliant. It's so true. I mean, I think that's what's so poignant and perfect about this film, why we like it so much. It does highlight the embarrassment of being a teenager. This film, it's so kind of remarkable for the 80s because the 80s, now mind you, I'm not a film scholar, but since me and Sasha have started doing this podcast, I sometimes will read an article here and there about 80s films. So we're not completely talking out of our assholes the whole time. Um, (laughs) But it talks about how it was just like the era of the formula film. You know what I mean? Like it really was about, um, you know, pitching like, like it's like Indiana Jones meets the Gremlins and then except it's all with Golden Girls. Like like that yeah. was like the era of that kind of thing. And it is everyone was chasing the blockbuster, just chasing the blockbuster. So for the, a film like this to be made at all is pretty remarkable. It uses a lot of the basic 80s motifs, but it somehow still works. Like it has the montage, like when they start training and they're like going- Oh yeah, sure. Like it's, it's, it's got all the classic markings of an 80s teen film, but it's yeah. completely surrealist and absurd. Like the idea that they, right in the middle of all of this, they've got like a ski competition, you know? It's like, what? The boy that she leaves him for, what's her name again? Oh God. So her Beth, name is Beth. Beth yeah. And the guy, Beth. yeah, he's Roy Stalin. <laughs> Roy Stalin, the ski prick. And that's the ski prick is actually exactly, you know, that horrible story I have about the one and only time I ever went snowboarding and injured like 25 children. <laughs> you get to share it with me and the world. Okay. So Roy Stalin is exactly the dude that, that committed this offense. So like when I, I want to try to do a reader's digest version of it. So I, when I was like, I don't know, maybe like 12 or 13 years old, I went on a trip to Big Bear with a friend of mine whose parents would take her, her brother, and then often a couple of their friends on these little mini vacations. 
I was on this one to Big Bear, as well as one of her cousins. And the cousin and I were very much not sporty kids. I was, I had brought two box sets of the Babysitter's Club and I was ready to plop a buck through those things in a weekend and drink a lot of hot cocoa. And about a day into the trip, her mom informs us that she bought us all passes to go snowboarding. All right, snowboarding lessons. And I was like, oh, it's so gracious of you. I would like to decline. And I was shamed into taking these lessons because I was not a normal kid that didn't like to do normal kids sporting things. So here I go for the next like three days me and the kids and the cousin to these snowboarding lessons, which I paid zero attention to the entire time because I had no desire to be there. Fast forward to the final day. I'm just following the group and the next thing I know, we're supposed to be getting on the lift. I don't want to get on the lift because the lift means we go up and that means that we have to come back down. And I try all with all my might to, to not get on this lift. No, I have to get on the lift and I get paired up with the cousin the also not so sporty cousin. And now Roy Stalin, who has been our, um, you know, our snowboarding Sherpa for the last three days, he really is some 17 year old prick who was just there to pick up on 14 year old girls. And he has no sympathy and has not really noticed that she and I have not been paying attention the entire time. We get on the lift. We attempt to get on the lift anyway. When she freaks out, seizes up, grabs me, pulls us both off the front of the list, lift, and we both get clocked in the back of the head when we're trying to get off, when we're trying to jump off the fucking thing, right? So we end up underneath the lift. They have to stop the whole thing, pull us out from underneath it. And as I'm getting lectured for falling off of the lift, she fucking skulks off the side of the mountain like a goddamn Yeti. And I am left at the top of the fucking slope with Roy Stalin, who's like, okay, well, it's your turn. It's your turn to go down the hill. I'm like, but, but I, I really don't want to. My head hurts, I'm, I'm dizzy. He's like, no, clip in, it's time to go down the mountain. And I'm like, but I, I don't want to. What are you so afraid of? Death, dude, I'm afraid of death. At which point he pushes me. He pushes me down the mountain and I just start going. And I am freaking out because I know that I am not a sporty kid that knows how to stay upright on any kind of moving object, but somehow fear and the desire to stay alive clicks into my muscles and I am upright and I am going and I am feeling like a fucking boss. And I can hear him yelling something behind me and it sounds like, ah, ah, ah. Ah, and I'm trying to think like, what, what did we learn? This is all happening in like a three second period. What did we learn in this lesson that sounded like op, op? Oh, hop, hop? Did he say hop, hop? I remember something about hopping. So I start hopping like a fucking bastard. And all of a sudden I'm like in a wind tunnel. My face is smearing. I'm going so fast. And I realized that hop, hop, in fact, makes you go faster. And that's when I realized, no, no, he wasn't saying hop, hop. He was saying, stop, stop, because in my desire to just stay upright and alive, I, nor he, had he noticed that when he pushed me down the fucking hill, the junior ski team of 25, seven to eight year olds was going across the mountain as I was coming down. I didn't know how to stop, stop. So what I did was throw myself face down into the snow, where I then started to helicopter with the weight of the snowboard attached to my feet. <laughs> into, plowed straight into this group of 25 children. And all I saw were little mittens and little screams. Ah! 
everywhere. Little, little skis, little mittens, little faces everywhere. And then all of the parents came running down off the side of the mountain and gave me, of course, the one black kid on the mountain, a whole mountain of shit for having injured all these children. And then I ended up with two sprained ankles. And what did I get to do? Drink hot cocoa and read my fucking babysitter's club like I just fucking wanted to in the first place. So fuck Roy Stalin, that guy's real and he can go fuck himself. <laughs> you should have done it on the first day. And then you wouldn't have had to worry about any. I know. <laughs> well, it never, it never, because I wasn't listening, it never occurred to me that I was actually gonna have to like skip K-12, dude. Well, you know, Roy Stalin in this movie, he's actually not an instructor. He's a student at high school. And with crow's feet. Like, with crow's feet. I was about to say, like, she dumps him for a 42-year-old uh, yeah. senior, which would make sense in this world, right? Because Booger's in this movie. What's oh, God. His name Curtis in Armstrong. Curtis, Curtis Armstrong's Armstrong. in this movie. And one of the classic lines of, I've been going to this high school for seven years. I'm no dummy. <laughs> <laughs> he is awesome. I love him so uh, much well, as a character actor from the 80s. He was at a restaurant that I went to a few years ago and I had to fight so hard not to be that chick. I think, he would have I, loved, awesome. I think he would have loved to say I do. What's his name in the movie? Charles Dumas. He wears a fucking top hat when he goes skiing. And his big thing is he's trying to always try to get high from snorting jello to snorting snow on the mountain. Oh, the jello thing makes me so sick to my stomach. Even still, I can't make, oh, it just grosses me out so much. Let's talk about just the character actors because it's an explosion of amazingness. Amazingness. Amazingness? Amazing. No, we're going we'll with amazingness. Great. So, yeah, like <laughs> the mailman. Brilliant, um, brilliant character. Love him. Always have loved that scene where he's like hustling Badger for getting dirty book, like a dirty book in the mail. And this is really hilarious. And then there's guys there's Badger runs, in general. You badger know, in like general who never says a word. Um, there's the guy who runs the pig burger who is like the perfect gross old nasty man who doesn't wash his hands before he touches raw meat. Exactly, exactly, it's so gross. And then we'll talk about the moms. So there were certain things that I remember from this movie. And then there was a lot of things that on this rewatch that was like, oh my God, I forgot about that part. But the one thing I will always associate with this movie to the end of my days will be the mother's cooking when she makes the green gloop with raisins in it. It's got raisins. on the table. Her character is off the hook. And you know, she's been an actress since like the 1940s. She was the little girl in True Grit with John fucking Wayne. Like, really? This, this woman's been an actress forever. Yeah. And her last credit was 2019. So she's still oh, wow. an actress and, and everything. She's like old school, new school, all over school. And oh no, she's amazing. And then the Christmas scene when she's got the weird reindeer hoodie and she gets in the aardvark outfit to put on like she's just so queen everyone's going to be so, wearing these she's yeah. i made this recipe it was in mccall's it the the magazine got wet and some of the pages ran together but i just used my own creative little mind you see it has raisins in it you like raisins and that's when i knew i was like this woman is real because you can't you cannot make this up and that's what it says when he describes it being autobiographical he's like my mom could not cook She'd get recipes out of McCall's and then make excuses for why something tasted like roadkill because she didn't have an ingredient or this, that, or the other thing. Oh, what about the other part? She goes, um, for our French guest, I've made a special meal. French fries, French, French dressing. dressing, French bread, 
and to drink Peru. Peru. I love that she also calls it dinner mondu. <laughs> She's so cute though. Like She's how can so you adorable. not? Even while I was having this like terrible flash to like the instantaneous script of an episode of Six Feet Under being written while Lane is dangling from the power cord, I'm looking at her adorable little pink socks and shoes that she's wearing <laughs> while vacuuming. I think she's so adorable. Okay, so now talking about adorable, can we talk about John Cusack? He's so cute in this movie. He's just so He's cute. He's so charming. He's so cool and so charming. And like, I don't get why like any girl would dump him. And when he was like, she'd go out with me in a second. I'm like, why wouldn't any girl go out with this guy in a second? He's so cute. And like, what's the scene when he's, um, when they have the flashback scene and he's wearing little checkered shorts. I was like, I am in love. I mean, oh my God. he was so cute. And I love his scream. You know, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I wonder too, because, so John Cusack did this movie and then even though he hated this movie, he had to be in the next movie because it was it was under contract. So he was in um, One Crazy Summer as well. Uh-huh. And like, I think about John Cusack's career and I just feel like he maybe took himself too seriously. That's like, what I was not, thinking, yeah. You know, and it, he, like this wonderful, like his timing is great. His facial expressions are great. He's really funny. Like. You know the scene, okay, and I know we'll probably bring it up again, that, you know, everybody wants some claymation. That's the thing that apparently when they tested the film, that's the thing that people loved the most. How could you not love it the most? It's amazing. amazing. The Van Halen song. Everybody wants some! And little dancing hamburgers. And he's a Frankenstein. And he's a Frankenstein. I love everything he does. Everything he does is Dr. Frankenstein is brilliant. Everything is brilliant. But yeah, I think that what you're saying is right. He had just had, he had just come off of a lot of success from um, Sure Thing. I think he'd had a lot of supporting roles up until that point and he was just really seeing himself as John Cusack leading man. And he didn't get it. He didn't get the surreal absurdity of this film and that it was brilliant. And that's probably why he was like, you've ruined me. I was going places. And then he still went places. But speaking of which, where the fuck is he now? He's in. He's on a television show. But anyway, he did some great movies. But the goofball part of, of his acting, can't really think of any film that he's done where he's goofy except for being John Malkovich. And and mind you, I love John Cusack, and he's done some brilliant, you know, performances as as a serious actor. But I miss the goofball because he was so good at goofball. It's your. It's the same issue with Tom Hanks. You're a Tom Hanks. Oh yeah, no, I was just gonna say this. This was um, John Cusack's bosom buddies. So another character that we haven't mentioned, Ricky Smith, the weird nasal spray snorting, crocheting, plaid pants wearing shut-in freaky neighbor boy who um whose weird crazy mom uh that looks like she was actually a character in a john waters movie um who i'm sure was actually his real neighbor basically imports a french girl for him to be his uh his his living girlfriend concubine which is so creepy and weird and, and if you flip the script it could have gone very very differently kind of like planes trains and automobiles but he is so good as the creepy boy next door. And he does this thing twice in the movie that makes me scream. So one is at the dance when he loses track of her 
and comes out to find her standing on the steps talking to Lane. And he runs holding this yellow balloon. And as he sees her, he lets go of the yellow balloon and does the most pathetic little hop to try to get back to the balloon and then turn yep. around. And yep. he does the same hop at the end when they have their little sword fight with the ski poles. And that little hop will never get old for me. <laughs> that little hop makes me pee a little bit. It's so funny. So again, the details in this film, the details, these details. When he gives, or when his mom gives Monique a framed picture of Ricky for Christmas, did you notice that the frame is crocheted? Like, it's so good. I this film not, is so good. I own it so I can go back and see that. Oh, this film is just, like I said, it's like no detail was spared or, or not considered. And that to me is the sign of brilliant filmmaking or brilliant storytelling, brilliant, just fucking being brilliant. Dot the I's, cross the T's. It's all, right? they're all there. Um, and so then, of course, we haven't spoken about Monique. Monique, Monique, as I mentioned, is the, the imported sex concubine for, for, for Ricky Smith, who I'm trying to understand when we first see her, she's in her bedroom unpacking her things. And I'm trying to think, is she in the middle? She's wearing a baseball hat, an oversized men's denim shirt, no pants, no shoes, no socks. And I'm like, wait, is she a trailblazer and this is an outfit or is, is she half naked? I'm not sure what's going on with Monique's outfit. And she looks like a spunky little five-year-old with her hair all like bundled up under this random little baseball hat. I think it's adorable, but it was an interesting look. It was well, an interesting look. I love her clothes in this movie. Oh, I want to dress like that. That oversized. She wears at Christmas. Yeah. That's like got the cowl neck, and it's oh yeah, a certain way. And then uh -huh. I just love her like vests and her little hat that she wears, like and her tiny little, little kitten heels that she wears while working oh, on this car. Here's the thing: I like Monique. I do. I like her a lot. Um, I think she's a good 1980s girlfriend or 1980s romantic in interest. I think there's nothing not to like about Monique. And actually there's no women in this film, like of the girls, there's no like, ugh, like Beth is a, is a twit, but she's not like gross and nasty. She's not an ugh Andy yeah. well, you know, or a, ugh time, Ariel, you know? Well, she does say some pretty shitty things to it. Well, yeah. We can't give Beth- Oh no, I'm not giving her a pass. I'm just saying she's not, she's yeah. not a fucking Ariel. She's not an ugh Andy. No, no, she's not, she's not. And Monique, the only thing I would give Monique is she does have that kind of cool girl thing. It's like, I'm a girl, but I love baseball and I'm great at skiing and I know how to fix cars. You know, it's like, okay. Yeah. yeah. So she's yeah. the fantasy woman. Of I love life. when she's, I love when she's skiing and her body double is clearly Richard Simmons. <laughs> that wig. I but, love, I love a bad 80s body double wig. And that one was spectacular. I have to say that throughout all the absurdity, throughout all the comedy, the romance of this movie actually still exists. Like this movie is a good movie to watch on Valentine's Day. And of course it made me feel a little depressed this Valentine's Day. Because mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Sasha, we're both single now. We've both somehow oh. started this podcast in a couple and now we are no longer in a couple. So, you know, anyway. And, what and a the difference baby, a pandemic makes. <laughs> what a difference a pandemic makes. So I don't know why, but this movie actually did give me those lovesick blues a little bit because I don't know, maybe it's because it's Valentine's Day. Maybe it's because John Cusack kind of looks like my ex-partner. Maybe mm -hmm. it's because like it was just really touching. So I think that too is a testament to why this movie is great because there's other teen comedies that have that romantic bit in it. 
but they're just really shallow or vague. But like you can actually see Lane and Monique, their romance grows over, mm-hmm. you know, a couple different meetings and they actually, it just doesn't feel like it comes out of nowhere. Again, another tick for this movie that makes it great. Yeah, no, I mean, they just, he really managed to take us into his insecure, obsessive, absurd teen mind. Like, I just love how, and again, the scene in the in, in the geometry class where we, we go so deep into how how much anxiety being in that class generated for him as he was certain that everybody else understands this from me. Clearly, I'm the alien as he sits behind a guy who's clearly like a 47-year-old fucking gay porn star. The obsessiveness of it, the way that you will harp on what what are they doing now? Who are they talking to now? What's going on now? Of course, in the days before you could stalk on social media and find the fuck out within two clicks. Um, how every single male character he encounters starts a conversation with him only to have it lead into, so, you know, I was wondering, since I noticed that you're not seeing Beth anymore, would it be okay if I started seeing her, you know, just go out for soda, some conversation? I know this is awkward because that's that's the running thought in his mind constantly is that every guy he sees is the next guy that's gonna be better than him that she wants to date. Even, even Barney Rubble. So good. Even Barney motherfucking <laughs> Rubble. Oh my God. It's like what you said, you can't make some of this stuff up. If you can, it has to come from like the depths of your soul. And I want desperately to believe that they did have a psycho assassin nine-year-old for a paper boy. And that's, and that's where (laughs) that character came from. And I love, then that character is so, he's so good at being such a little psycho. And you and I have, have adopted that forever. I think we've been saying this since high school. The absolute epitome of pettiness for us, if someone acts in a petty way, the first thing either of us say is, oh, Mr. Two Dollars, Two Dollars, Two Dollars, Two Dollars. Like we have been using that phrase for 26 years, you and I. I love the Two Dollars guy. He's another great character, another great character that I forgot. Remember when his father forces him to go on a date, right? Oh my God. And then he goes on a date with a girl with headgear. And she's a feminist boss. And she's just like, look, I don't want to go out with you. So takes out her fucking calculator. I've got better things to do than to go on a fake date with you. In any other comedy, it should have been that it was just an awkward date with the ugly girl, right? Like that's the... Oh yeah, and especially after he built it up, getting ready in the mirror, talking about like what a fox he is and how he hopes that she doesn't drag a like hold onto his leg as she as he tries to walk away screaming, yeah. please don't go. And there she is just being like, yeah, I have no interest in doing this. You have no interest in doing this. So let's just cut to the chase. Here's my calculator. Dinner would be 10 bucks. I don't think you're a cheapskate. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. $13.72. Yes, I take checks. Again, going back to the geometry scene, when he goes to the chalkboard and he like, screeches against it they took the time to do everyone's hair up oh in my the air god. just for oh a, my a, god a, a, so a amazing one second scene yes and i was just like these this guy just was about like he there's a love in this film like, mm-hmm. you know, like i do love how he's um takes her on a date to Pig Burger with the TV dinners that he got from Christmas. And Which then- all I could think was were defrosted when he opened them. So he's given her the gift of Tomaine. Here's some food poisoning. Okay, so but one of my favorite parts though of that, so he, he feeds her the TV dinner 
they have, I want a, a sparkling apple cider. I don't know what they're drinking as teenagers, but he's like, oh wait, I forgot the most important part. And then he goes and gets his saxophone and he starts playing the saxophone squarely into her left ear. And she looks over her right shoulder out the window as though she can't figure out where the noise is coming from. Do you know that I have been serenaded by a sax before? And it was probably the most cringe-worthy experience. I can only imagine my life. <laughs> and like, like it was literally one of those moments of like, there is nowhere to go. Like, and I've been serenaded a couple times, you know, not to toot my own horn, everyone, um, but you know, like Amanda's played a piano for me, that was fine. Guitar for me, that was fine. Saxophone, it was just like, hmm, like what? do I do? Where do I go? It was so embarrassing. It's, it's, it was a horrific moment in my life. <laughs> like we have to somehow, we have to somehow cut but the out. Song, the but the song that they use in that scene is amazing. And that's the one that actually got to, to me because that was a song that was kind of um, from my, my former relationship that we had a moment with that song. And I like that song a lot. So that, that song is very sweet and I couldn't pretty. find it like anywhere. The whole, the whole soundtrack, I'll find it for you. Um, well, no, the I whole soundtrack it. is really I, good. Yeah, I was trying to find it. The guy who does it is- Rupert Hine. I would like a copy of that. Yeah, I found it on YouTube. Yeah, I'll send it to you. It's really good. This movie is romantical. Ricky gets a girlfriend, even at the oh, end. Oh, the one that looks like- Yay! Oh, you shite. We can't, we're gonna have to edit that and it's like a good joke. <laughs> I, we have to figure out a way to beep it. We're gonna beep it. So we can keep that in, and then everyone can just ask us who the fuck we were talking about. A sick burn, sick burn on my part. That was a really mean burn. I don't know. If Whatever. Well, I mean, fuck it. Like you said, no one's a fat, ugly bitch until they're fucking mean to you, and then they're a fat, ugly bitch. I don't know if I have anything else on my list to talk about. It's a hilarious film to watch at Valentine's Day that will still warm your heart. It's it's a wonderful absurdist romp that is a completely authentic portrayal of the obsessive insecurities of a teenager who is extremely creative and it's perfect. And I'm so glad that I own a DVD of I'm it. Jealous. Now I have to now I have to keep a DVD player so that I can keep watching it for the rest of your life. Rest of my life. A okay. DVD player. Mhm. Mm so should we wrap up here? Wait a second. We cannot wrap up without talking about one more thing. Ah, okay. That is probably one of the best parts of the movie. And that is when Mama Smith drinks paint thinner, <laughs> blows her own face off, and then spends the rest of the movie in a partial jaw cast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Mic drop. I'm done. Fucking hilarious. Perfect film. Perfect film. No complaints. Not mad at any part of it. And I will watch it over and over and over again. I think we should make it a Valentine's Day. Well, that's the thing. Watch it's a Valentine's Day special, but for you, it's also a Christmas movie. Oh my God, I'm so glad you caught that. I forgot to bring it up. <laughs> yeah, never occurred to me it's also a Christmas movie. Yeah, it's a Christmas movie. I'm so glad you caught that. Thank you, Sasha. You're welcome, Amy. I'm here. <laughs> oh my days. Okay, so on a transatlantic flight. Would you watch Better Off Dead Beaches, or any movie with Liam Neeson in it. Oh, Beaches is good. I would watch. I would watch Better Off Dead, but I would also watch Beaches. But then I'd probably watch Better Off Dead again before to rinse, to rinse away Beaches. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, Beaches is great. And then it's like, you know, did I ever know that you may? And then it's like hard. So I would watch Better Off Dead. Story Goes without saying, we, we've cooed over this movie for the last hour. Definitely would watch Better Off Dead. Yeah. I've watched it several times. Yeah. I think it's brilliant. Kinda, I kind of hamstring this there with the with the beaches, but you know. Well, what about like Better Off Dead and then One Crazy Summer? I just watch them back to back and then do it again. The only thing that I remember about One Crazy Summer, because it's not as good as Better Off Dead. I, I remember that. But Bobcat, Goldthwait's in it. And I quite like Bobcat. I like, I'm, Bobcat. A big, I'm a big oh Bobcat fan. I think he's brilliant. But so, so we'll have to have a, that was such have a, a strange brand of comedy. That was such a strange, the, 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 the screaming brand of comedy that was out there for a while. I just, I just scream. It was a strange gimmick. It was a really strange gimmick. So there's a special of his that I saw once and it was like him, um, you know, he's all wacky like that. And then he was like, hey, I'm going to do an impression for you. And then he pulled back his hair and he sat down and he got a guitar oh, and he sang with or without you. And it was like, but he did it like totally spot straight. on. Like, like Andy Kaufman and Elvis. It was like, what? Spot like, on Bono impression. Yeah. Spot on Bono yeah. impression. And it was like in the middle of his comedy act. And then, and then he went right back to his chick and it was like, what just happened? We should do a Bobcat special episode. I think that would be a good one. <laughs> anyway, why don't you do our exit before we right. go off on more random shit? <laughs> Everybody wants some. I want something too. Everybody wants So thank you all so much for listening to our latest episode of Eating After Midnight 2021 edition. If you liked what you heard, please pop on over to iTunes or whatever platform you listen to us on and leave us a review. You'd also make our day if you could follow us on Instagram at Eating After Midnight Podcast. And if you've got the time, DM us with any comments, questions, or complaints. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, please remember, Everybody wants some. Even if you think you might be better off dead, you definitely are not. And if you feel that way, please call all of the local numbers that are available to you for that. We want to see you next time. 